Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And you get a sense of where he's going. He's not really interviewing them about the technical aspects that he wants them to understand about submarines and nuclear technology. If there's an English major, he's asking them, tell me about Chaucer. What do you really know about him? John Donne, explain him. What century did he, did he live in? Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. Well, I hope all is well with you today. It is another beautiful day here in North Carolina. And this episode is brought to you by our sponsors, Ignite Management Services and Liberty Strength. These sponsors help me bring these shows to you each and every week, so I encourage you to click on their links below and check them out. Also, I want to remind you that the Qualified Leadership Book Series, which includes all three of my best-selling leadership books, is now available on my website, johnsrenny.com. You get all three books for 15% off the Amazon and Barnes & Noble price, but this offer is only available on my website. Now, this is the perfect Christmas gift for the leader or future leader in your family, so check it out at johnsrenny.com. Well, that is it. Today, we have a very special episode. We're going to be talking about the life and leadership of one of the most influential naval officers in American history, a man who is the father of the nuclear Navy, Admiral Hyman G. Rickover. And my guest is Dr. Claude Baruby. Claude's new book, Rickover Uncensored, provides a new look at the life of this incredible leader. Claude had access to Rickover's personal files and gives us a unique look at his life. Often the best way to learn leadership is to look at the lives of great leaders like Rickover. I love this discussion and I know you will as well. So are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The show starts right now. Welcome to the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Claude Barabee. Claude wrote his doctoral dissertation on the Navy during Andrew Jackson's presidency, which became the book On Wide Seas. He has worked on political campaigns as an analyst and team leader at the Office of Naval Intelligence, as a National Security Fellow in the U.S. Senate, and as a defense contractor for the Naval Sea Systems Command and the Office of Naval Research. He is concluding nearly 20 years of teaching at the U.S. Naval Academy. He retired as a commander from the U.S. Navy Reserves where he was an intelligence officer. His third novel, The Philippine Pact, came out earlier this year and his fifth nonfiction book, 
Rick Over Uncensored is now available. And I'm excited to have him on the show to talk about the life and leadership of Admiral Iman G. Rickover, a man who had a tremendous impact on the U.S. submarine force. So, Claude, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate your having me on. Well, I am honored to have you and to learn more about Admiral Rickover because he certainly was a man that had a lot of influence in our country and especially the nuclear Navy and the submarine forces of which I served. So I'm always interested in, in learning more about him and how he was so successful in his career, yet, you know, they, he had some challenges as well, which we're going to hear about. So, um, so Rickover is probably one of the most uh, best known admiral in our history. But for those who may not know much about him, tell us a little bit about his life and his influence on the Navy. Hyman Rickover, I think, is one of the great American success stories, especially in terms of national security. Uh, he grew up in a much poverty in Poland or what is today Poland. Uh, he recounts the travels that his mother and his sister and he took when they were very young uh, to get to a port in order to meet up with their father who was here in the United States who had preceded them. Uh, he recounts the fact that he only saw an orange once a year when his mother could afford one on special occasions. He recounts seeing Cossacks, Russian Cossacks, tapping at their cart as they're trying to get to the port at the conclusion of the Russo-Japanese War. He ends up in Chicago and works as uh, sending telegrams, anything he could do for work, and eventually gets a, a, an opportunity to go to the U.S. Naval Academy, enters in 1918, and graduates in 1922. He serves in surface Navy ships, surprisingly, for the first decade or so, about decade and a half. Finally, permanently uh, goes to the submarine community. Uh, during He commands a ship during, the, uh, during 1937, in which he's in Shanghai, and he's recounting the uh, Japanese invasion force coming into China and provides incredibly detailed information on those. During World War II, he's assigned uh, by and large to Pearl Harbor to try to rebuild the fleet. And after Pearl Harbor, uh, sorry, after World War II, he's assigned to this new nuclear or atomic energy program as a Navy captain. And he would eventually become the head of naval reactors. Uh, he would serve for about 35, uh, 40 years in that capacity, finally retiring or being forced to retire in 1982. He reaches a four-star admiral level, which is extremely significant. We can talk about how he got there a little later on. But I don't think, and I think a lot of people would agree with this, that we would not have had the nuclear program or the safety record that we had without Hyman G. Rickover, an incredibly popular person among the American public, but also internationally throughout his life, especially since the USS Nautilus, the first U.S. submarine uh, that was nuclear-powered, got underway. He's one of the few admirals in the post-war environment to uh, grace the cover of Time magazine. There were thousands and thousands of fan mail letters to him from across the country and around the world, something you don't have today. So I think he probably did more for the Navy in the 20th century, particularly during peacetime, than any other flag officer. Yeah, so he's an interesting character because, you know, a lot of times we hear about uh, captains, admirals, their wartime records, they're leading, um, you know, leading a group in battle or what have you, and the, the heroics around it. He was a man that shaped 
shaped the, the Navy and actually how it was built and how it went to war, how it um, built its ships, how it built its submarines. You mentioned the nuclear power pr- program, how he created essentially the the, the nuclear power program. So that's, um, you know, it, he's he's known for his his influence on on the Navy and the world versus just his like his heroics in battle, which is very interesting. Uh, I think that's one thing that's interesting about him. No, you're absolutely correct. Uh, I can think of only perhaps one other admiral that have been, might have been uh, John Dahlgren during the 19th century, whose career was largely defined by the development of uh, certain weapons rather than his service during the Civil War, which was uh, brief and relative, comparatively undistinguished when you're looking at, at other admirals. But no, I think uh, it's tough to find an admiral like Hyman G. Rickover who would have had this effect without having been, and I I shudder to say, uh, not a combat vet because he was in a combat area simply uh, due to the nature of World War II, but also prior to World War II or our entry into it when he was in Shanghai, when things could have uh, taken a very different turn very quickly. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, there's been a lot of, as you mentioned, uh, we talked about before we started press record, there's been a lot of biographies written about uh, Admiral Rickover. Um, and so we get a sense of who he was from those biographies. But your book is different. And so tell us a little bit about what makes this book different. Several years ago, I had an opportunity to meet Eleanor Rickover, his second wife. He had met her when he was uh, recovering from surgery at Bethesda Naval uh, Hospital. And she was a lieutenant commander, a Navy nurse. and I asked her, well, how did you meet the Admiral? And she said, well, I walked into his room one day and he had all these newspapers thrown about all over the room. And I yelled at him, told him to clean them up immediately. And then the next time I came in, it was cleaned up and he asked me on a date. So oh. <laughs> that, that was it. I think he had a great deal of respect for somebody who would stand up to him. Yes. Uh, so I got to know her and she eventually asked if she might be able to donate a lot of the Admiral's items to the Naval Academy Museum where I, I currently head. And um, certainly that that we had received things before, but his congressional gold medal, some uniforms that were part of this. But most, I think most importantly, this collection of what became 250 archival boxes worth of letters, memoranda for the record, transcripts of telephone conversations, uh, and other documents that really shed light. So when I, as a historian, when I took a look at this, I had to make a decision. I, I thought I was going to write another biography, but then I came about seven, let's see, it was about seven months in total that I looked at this, and I'd say about three or four months into it. I saw a note where Rick Over is talking about the, the papers in his condominium and how he... Uh, doesn't want another biography written of him, and he hopes that maybe someday somebody will just use the papers so people will understand him. That's when I knew that as a historian, my role was not to interpret everything. I I certainly did with about a 3,000-word introductory essay. But more importantly, to select what I thought was important from those tens of thousands of documents and try to condense his life through his words in about 500 pages. I think there's a lot more work to be done, quite frankly. I think there's probably eight to 10 more books that could be written simply on this uh, collection, which I I think is really important. Nobody's ever seen it before, except for his official biographer. 
But by the same token, he had a, I saw the contract with uh, the gentleman, Dr. Francis Duncan, from several decades ago, and it said, you may see this material, but I must approve anything you write. So Rickover was uh, very attentive to his own message and formulating the public persona about him. And consequently, that's why I thought Rickover Uncensored would be a, an appropriate title for this, because for the first time, he's able to express himself. People are able to see the love letters between uh, Rickover and his first wife in the 1930s, which shed incredible light on a different aspect of this man. And other uh, memos that he's sending out that that uh, dispel some myths, but also confirm some of the stories that have been generating about him for decades. Hmm. So as, as you look at it, I mean, so we have this, you know, public view of, of Rickover being, I mean, he was a tough guy, right? He, uh, you know, the stories, cause, so I, I came into the, the, the nuclear Navy after uh, Rickover, but um, had already left. But, you know, I, there was many officers I, I, I served with who had been through those interviews with Rickover. And he was a tough, he was really tough, especially on officers coming into the, into the, his, his naval nuclear program. It was his program. And he made sure people knew that he was, he was tough. He was direct. Um, he, he was a force of nature. He got things done. Uh, so what were some of maybe some of the surprises you found as you look through, you know, these 250 boxes of information about his life, which like you said, include even love letters and what have you. So what were some surprises that you found when you went through this? Well, first, you mentioned uh, or referred to the interviews, the famous interviews of midshipmen, both ROTC and Naval Academy, which could be brutal. Yes. But you had always just heard the stories from those who had experienced it. I came across a number of transcriptions of those interviews. Wow. I couldn't believe that what I was seeing, because here we had, for the first time, confirmation uh, because as an intelligence officer, you always try to get two different sources. Well, here was the, the famous second source. So there are at least about a dozen of those. And you get a sense of where he's going. He's not really interviewing them about the technical aspects that he wants them to understand about submarines and nuclear technology. If there's an English major, he's asking them, tell me about Chaucer. What do you really know about him? John Donne, explain him. What century did he, did he live in? Uh, if they were history majors or if they were uh, Catholic, he do a deep dive into Catholicism and, and the concepts behind it. And what I, what I learned after a while is he was really looking for how people could think and understand different concepts and absorb information. And he said himself in one of the notes that I can send anybody to nuke school. I can't send anyone to think. And that's why I think he was stressing that. The surprises. Uh, first, the love letters to his first wife, Ruth, were absolutely amazing. The, they were daily from 1929 to 1940. Wow. They, you know, th there's the typical, you know, I feel like I'm in a forest as the waterfall is, you know, coming down. You know, the, the typical young, young folks in love. But also half of those, you know, he, he talked about that for a while. And then he discuss a book or an opera that they had both seen independently. They're talking about uh, Russian books. They're talking about Mein Kampf early on and having a discussion. Ruth had been German her, or her parents uh, were from Germany. 
you so you get a sense of Rickover letting his guard down and his support very early on for women. He talks about that, you know, I am not equal to this woman. She is far superior to me. Mm. Uh, so, but he's talking about not only equality for women, but equality for and compassion for the poor. And I think it's because he came from that. An example of that is when he's in Shanghai and he's off the ship walking through the streets and he sees uh, a very destitute person and he, and he tells Ruth, all I had were a few coins, but that's all I could give him uh, and try to hold him in, his, in what probably were going to be his final days. There was a remarkable uh, letter that he received and that he sent uh, later on around 1979, to a young nine-year-old boy in California. His first name was Hyman. And he wrote to Admiral Rickover saying, my mother said, you're an admiral in the Navy and you help build ships and your first name is Hyman. Do you get angry too when people make fun of your first name? Hmm. Rickover didn't always reply to the letters, but in this case he did. And he talks about, well, here's, you know, in the Jewish faith, here is the background for the name. Here's what it means and he, it's a very empathetic letter, but I think most importantly in this letter, of all the tens of thousands of letters and memos I saw from Rickover, everything was signed H.G. Rickover. In this case, it was signed Hyman G. Rickover. And I think it was a way for him to show this young man that, yes, I'm an admiral and this is my name and I'm very proud of it and you should be too. Those were two of the surprises. Uh, there were others where he's talking about his longtime uh, staff, both the engineers and the administrative staff who had been with him for 20, 30, 40 years in some cases. This sense of loyalty that you didn't really, you wouldn't really imagine because you keep thinking because he was so mean and cantankerous from all these stories that these people would just be by the wayside every year or two. They would want somebody else to come in. Instead, he engendered a great deal of loyalty from his staff. The humor, I think, it was a great surprise. The memos to his staff around Christmas time, or even some of the things he would say directly to U.S. senators at the beginning of a hearing and crack them all up. You don't think of Rickover as a funny individual mm. in terms of humor. And so those are just some of the things that I was able to uh, deduce from, from the man in these letters and these memos. Certainly there is the side, the, the cantankerous side, the acerbic side, but he's a very driven individual. And at one point makes the comment toward the end of his career, my work has been my life and I, you need to have a mission in life and this has been mine. And I, that's why I only took four and a half days off of annual leave or vacation every year since I became a commissioned officer. So those are the, some of the things that you would see in, in these letters. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. As a leader, you're responsible for the mission and the people assigned to you. Regardless of the size of your team, employees are depending on you for their lives and careers. For the sake of your team and the people who entrust you with this role, you need to master the skills to become a great leader. Best-selling leadership author John Rennie is proud to introduce the Qualified Leadership Book Series. This new series teaches you how to become a people-centered leader. Great leaders know that employees who are respected, appreciated, and allowed to grow will go the extra mile. 
These books provide real-world leadership wisdom written from a hands-on perspective. If you want to be a more effective leader, this is the one book series you should read this year. This three-book series contains the following best-selling leadership books. I Have the Watch, You Have the Watch, and All in the Same Boat for one low price of $39.99. Begin your journey to become a leader worth following. Go to johnsrenny.com and get your order in today. This episode is brought to you by Ignite Management Services. Ignite is led by Mike Watson, who you might remember from episode 137. Mike and his team believe that everything starts with leadership, whether it's strategy execution or cultural transformation. It's the role of the leader to create the conditions for their people to succeed. The team at Ignite can help you develop critical habits to enhance your leadership capability and transform your business. Ignite Management is now offering the Resilient Leadership Assessment Tool. This is an online questionnaire designed to assess and guide leadership development, coaching, and team building. It provides leaders an opportunity to gain insights into their leadership strengths and development needs. After taking this assessment, you will receive a custom detailed report that provides practical and actionable recommendations to enhance your effectiveness. I have taken this assessment myself and found it to be extremely valuable in helping me make changes to my leadership approach. Right now, Ignite is offering 15% off the price of this tool to the deep leadership audience. Go to ignitemanagement.ca and enter the code START15 at checkout to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Jeremy Clevenger at Liberty Strength. As a high-performing leader, you know that leadership isn't about telling people what to do. It's about leading by example. And for most people, the one area that they are lacking when it comes to leading by example is their health and fitness. By improving your health and fitness, every other area of your life improves. Your energy skyrockets, your sleep improves, your confidence increases, and more. But how can you get and stay fit as a busy leader? Well, you do what you've always done. You hire the best people for the job. Don't struggle on your own. Put liberty strength in your corner. Jeremy and his team will work with you to take your physique, mindset, nutritional habits, and more to the next level with his step-by-step, all-inclusive coaching program. I've worked with Liberty Strength for the past two years, and I'm in the best shape of my life, and I'm still hitting strength personal records at 56 years old. If you want to step up your game, reach out to Jeremy at libertystrengthtx.com to find out more and get your initial consultation scheduled with him today. Do you think, did you get a sense that his his immigrant background, his growing up poor, um, did, 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 was that some of the fuel that drove him uh, throughout his career? You know, I because I, I know uh, you, you see that a lot with, with entrepreneurs. You'll see, you know, immigrant entrepreneurs tend to have this just n- never quit kind of attitude. And I wonder if that, some of that was in him and you, you maybe saw that through the papers. A- absolutely. First, I don't think Rick Over would have allowed anyone to outwork him. He understood what it meant to earn a dollar and how hard he used to have to work for that dollar when he was growing up. Second, he gave back in an incredible way. Every book and every speech he made, he took that money and donated it to charity. And I saw the receipts uh, to the various organizations, and a lot of them were to orphan organizations to um, uh, collectives uh, who were destitute, anything that he could help raise up individuals. 
that's why he always fought the elites, whether they were the elites of the Navy or the elites of corporate America. He wasn't afraid to challenge them. But by the same token, he had the ability to challenge them for a couple of reasons. First, he was in his position for decades. Second, most importantly, he was in that position for decades and he could do what he wanted to do because of his relationship to Congress. He became friends with some key members who became senators and also stayed in the House, people like Henry Scoop Jackson. And they were the ones who got the Navy to change their minds, if you will, about his promotion. He didn't make Admiral. Uh, they, ex there are some great letters from a young Jack Kennedy, Senator Jack Kennedy, asking the Navy, what is the problem? Why can't it promote at Hyman G. Rickover? And they, did, they demanded that a, another board be conducted to revisit the candidates. So he's able to make one-star, two-star, three-star, four-star because of Congress, but also because of the presidents. He had a great relationship with Nixon, for example, that stemmed from a trip that they took to the Soviet Union to look at some Soviet warships. Uh, he had a fantastic relationship, obviously, with uh, Jimmy Carter, who wrote to him early on. He was still governor of Georgia at the time and said, Admiral, I just want to let you know I'm running for president in 1976 and I'd like your support. And there's this whole correspondence between the two individuals. So I don't think anybody could have challenged uh, Rick over in that way because of the power he held. In fact, what you see in, in one of the memos that's sent to him is that there is a, 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 a meeting of admirals in Monterey in the late 1960s, early 70s, and one of them, they're discussing the Rickover problem. Of, of all the problems that they have in the Navy, they're focused on the Rickover problem. And finally, one just says, look, he's got the friendship of the House and the Senate, and we just better get along with him because there's nothing we can change as a result. Yeah. That is an interesting side of that because I think as leaders, we think we need to take care of ourselves, we need to take care of our people, and everything will be great. But the truth of the matter is, is we've got to be good at networking and making sure we build relationships with people who can affect uh, the things that we're trying to do in, in, in our roles as leaders. And it seems to me, just based on what I've been looking through, is that Rick Harper had the ability to network, build relationships, and have resources that he could call upon when he needed support for the various things he was doing. He was able to build coalitions. Um, and so you, when you think of Rick Harper as this you know, tough individual, but you're also seeing a side of him as the ability to network and build and build partnerships and build friendships and long-term friendships? Yes and no. Okay. Yes, because the, the networking he did was on Capitol Hill. Hmm. Uh, he would go to private parties. He and Scoop Jackson and their wives would go to plays together. And I'd asked a retired four-star admiral, you know, did, did you ever do this when you were in this position? He goes, no, absolutely not. We would not be allowed to do something like that. Uh, but he, he inserted himself into other programs within the Navy. Now, I think he was obviously very capable based on his prolific reading and analysis of issues, but the other admirals didn't feel comfortable with what he was doing in their own lanes, if you will. And that was his downfall because by uh, 1981, most of his friends in Congress were either had either been defeated or had passed away. I mean, again, this is 
30 years of relationships on yeah. Capitol Hill. And a contemporary of Rickover's, Admiral, Vice Admiral Bob Monroe, who I've gotten to know, Admiral Monroe uh, still still with us, still sharp, and said, you know what, that, that was it. Uh, he had no supporters by the end. So I think there's also something to be said for leaving when you're at the top of your game. I think if he had left in 1980, in November, with the defeat of, of Jimmy Carter, I think his reputation would have been even more secure than it is. It would have avoided the problems and the challenges and the, the relationship he had with uh, Secretary of the Navy John Lehman, for example. Yep. Uh, because by then, Lehman and Reagan and everybody else were realizing that he didn't have his allies around anymore, like Scoop Jackson and the others. But to, to demonstrate the power that Rickover had as an admiral, as an individual in the Navy, there was one congressman who uh, wanted to see the House Appropriations Chairman. And he refused. Uh, he didn't want to see anybody. Another congressman said, look, you need to call Rick over and have him make the call to the appropriations chair. Well, sure enough, that congressman said, Admiral, would you please make a call for me? Made the call. And the next day, the appropriations chair saw that congressman just because Rick over asked. And I think that's a very powerful statement. You wouldn't see that today. You wouldn't see somebody who has that long, lengthy of a tenure. You wouldn't see somebody who has that relationship with members of Congress in which he could circumvent the Navy in many cases. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> you're, you're essentially getting things done sort of around the backs of other people in their lanes. And so they feel threatened, I would imagine. And so there's the, there would have been battles and he would have had enough people on his side to win those battles, but eventually that support dried up. Yeah, and, and by the same token, uh, because of that, Rickover was trusted by the House and the Senate because they knew when he came to testify, he had all of his ducks in a row. Mm. There was no question if he said, I'm going to put this ship to sea on January 1st, that that ship would be at sea on January 1st and it would have a great safety record. They trusted him in a way they didn't trust the other uh, flag officers. Yeah, that makes sense. What would you say some of the, the, the things that made Rickover effective as a leader? His knowledge. Mm. People don't realize the depth of information he was able to digest. And again, going back to the 1930s, I started writing a list of the books and the operas and the plays that he's discussing with Ruth. I had to stop after a while because there was simply too many. But it's not just about the Navy. He's learning about all aspects of life. And it's his curiosity, I think, more than anything else that allows him to be Rickover. It allows him to go in different lanes. And it, it's, quite frankly, uh, the reason why he looked at education and naval education in a way that supported the nuclear Navy. Because he saw, yeah, we could have a nuclear Navy, but if we don't have the individuals, not only within the Navy, but beyond in society from whom we can draw, we'll be in trouble. So we need to get thinkers out there. And the way you think is you read and you discuss it. And he gets very frustrated early in his career when the other officers are out playing golf and he's studying hard, uh, either as a midshipman or as a junior officer. But that would serve him well throughout his career. So I think the curiosity and the perseverance, as well as the networking he does with the key policymakers. 
Yeah, you definitely see that in him. Um, but it's interesting because a lot of times we talk a lot about leadership characteristics, and one of the most important ones that we sometimes leave out is competence. And 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 that comes with knowledge and being well-read and, and understand everything about your industry, everything about your situation. And he was, and the, and the way you get there is through curiosity. So I love to see that element of of Rick over because he was a curious guy. He was, he was well-learned. He was well-read, but, uh, and I, and I saw that, you know, going through nuclear power school, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Still to this day, I'm 56 years old. I've never done anything as hard as that six months at nuclear power school. It was, it was boot camp for engineers. I mean, essentially, you know, you come out of university thinking, oh, I know a lot, right? I got a, I've got a degree in my case, I had mechanical engineering degree. And you come in there and you're a nobody and you have to, you have to earn your six months. You have to earn graduation. And it was very difficult to do. My roommate was a 4.0 graduate with a nuclear engineering degree from WPI and he failed out and I made it through. And it was a very difficult program, but you saw he, his influence was directly, I could see his influence in nuke power school. One of the hardest things, one of the most things I'm most proud of, even, even though I served and, and I was in, in the Navy and I did all sorts of great things. I got through Duke Power School. That's like my, you know, my big thing. But you definitely saw his uh, influence uh, there when you went through that program. It was very difficult, and there was no, there was no days off. It wasn't. It wasn't. There was. There was. You know, there was study time in the evenings. You were working on the weekends. It was. It was very difficult. So you definitely see his work ethic, his perseverance, uh, and the knowledge that he expected from from his people in that program. So. It's it's neat to hear a little bit about him because I definitely saw it in my time uh, at Nuke Power School. What would you say, like uh, areas where he failed and and uh, had some blind spots? I think he failed in how he treated people, oftentimes, and that became the moniker for Rickover. Unfortunately, mm. uh, insulting people. I mean, there are transcripts of telephone conversations he has with reporters, for example, and he is absolutely brutal. Yeah. He's short. He's short-tempered with them. He's insulting with them. He Could he have gotten further without it? Oh, I don't know, because he went pretty far. Mm. Yeah. But I also think that that detracted from his, his abilities and his achievements. That, more than anything else, and the, the second part of that is I think you have to know when to leave when you're at the top of your game Mm. and not when people force you out because you're over the hump. Yeah, Rick Rick over was 82, 83 uh, during this whole process. And he's, he is the oldest flag officer we've ever had. And he's the longest serving Naval officer we've ever had. I think he, he didn't, he didn't want to leave. He may have known that it was his time. However, based on the letters and the the discussions that I'm seeing on the paper during this research, this was his life. And I don't think he knew what to do after. So I think we all face that time. You know, time time is no friend to any of us. At some point, we all have to retire uh, if we if we fortunately get that far. We have to know what the next mission is. And I think because he had been so involved in so many aspects over those decades with the nuclear power program, he didn't know what to do next. And I think he was lost. I think if he had thought about that more in the 1970s, about what the next step was, I think he would have come out of it of a far different personality 
and a far different per, uh, memory than we have of him. It's interesting too, because what his, his mission, his life's mission was, uh, you know, deeply impacted the country. And, mm-hmm. and so we talk about having, you know, uh, work-life balance, right? But he had none of that. <laughs> he was, oh. he, he, his work was his life. And, and because of that, he has such a deep impact on, on the country. And you wonder if he, if he had a work-life balance, if he, he, he would not have had that same effect, I wonder. I agree with you. And I also have to point out that relation, important relationship with Ruth. Uh, he, she passed away in 1972. And you're reading these letters to his very close few friends where he said, I never could have been the man today I was without having known Ruth and without her pushing me and our discussions. She was vital to creating the Admiral Rickover that we benefited from. She forced yeah. him to think more. She challenged him. Yeah. So he, she became more than a, uh, I don't know, more than a romantic interest, but more, a more fulfilling relationship for what Rickover needed. He needed somebody to challenge his mind, and he had that with Ruth. Mm. That's really interesting, too. We've talked about this on this show with having a support network, uh, you know, as leaders, you need to have people you can talk to and privately, but we never really talked too much about the impact a spouse makes on, you know, the career of a leader. In this case, Rickover had an equal or what he said even above, you know, but but somebody he could talk to mm-hmm. that would challenge him, push him, uh, question him. Uh, and I know for me, well, I've, I've been married 32 years and my wife has always been that person where I, I I'll give, I'll bring her an issue up in mostly relationships at work, and she'll be able to sort things out like, oh, this is what's really happening. And I think it's good to have somebody like that in your life that you can bounce ideas off, whether it's a mentor, whether it's uh, uh, someone that, you, that you're close to, like a peer, uh, but, but a spouse can also be that. And it's interesting to hear Rick over having a spouse that helped him. Absolutely. Well, they met at Columbia, and I think that's important because in 1935, he publishes his first article and it's on the submarine on submarine warfare and international relations. Well, when you're looking at the letters going back to 1929, they're discussing international relations and having a discussion about submarine warfare in a way you wouldn't have expected. But Ruth was, I, I think, I think she was the first woman to earn her PhD in international relations here in the United States. So she had that background that she could educate him, and he again he benefited from that. Yeah, that's. So again, uh, leaders who are listening in, this is an interesting uh, element of Ricker that you probably never even heard of, uh, but uh, you hear that his spouse was a big part of uh, who he was and how he led, and we need to have that support network in place as well. So the interesting, uh, interesting observations. What, uh, Claude, what final message would you like to leave with us uh, about Admiral Rickover in his life? The reason I, I did the book as I did, there is no index, by the way. It's the first time I've done that with, with my books. The reason why is I didn't want somebody to give it what we call the Washington, D.C. read. <laughs> you, know, you look right at the index to see if you or your boss is mentioned in the book. I wanted people to read his life in its totality, unimpeded, if you will, by an intermediary like me. Um, I think what historians do, what we do is very important in interpreting history and basing it on, on the facts and the research. But in this case, Rickover needed to speak for himself. And that's why I hope this will serve as a primary source and a very interesting read for 
anybody out there who's who's interested in learning more about arguably one of our most important admirals in our history. That's fantastic. And one thing you say that's kind of important is you the fact that you've taken uh, primary sources and put it in one document. It also will help for future researchers, I, I would think, get that information. So you know, it, you know, that information was not available to the public in the past. Now it is, but it also can be a primary source for future researchers. Is that what your hope is too? That's correct. And and keep in mind, this is about 500 pages. Uh, there are tens of thousands of documents in this collection. And I, that's why I hope other historians will also look at Rick or, Rickover's life from different uh, perspectives. Um, you know, being a historian, you're not supposed to be the only historian of a topic. You hope that you what you do will generate more interest. And I hope they will uh, go to the Nimitz Library at the Naval Academy and do that research. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, because I even think, you know, from my standpoint, I'm I'm working on a doctorate in leadership, so it's come, not in history, but but I see that the the fact that there's this primary source out there where where if someone were to dig into the leadership side of Rick Over and really try to unpack the the good, bad, and the ugly of his life, you're going to need some of that information. So it's good to have you know that a place to find that information. So uh, that's fantastic, Claude. This has been fantastic having you on the show. It's, a, it's certainly an honor and. Uh, and I'm so glad you did this work. And and for me, at least, it's good to be able to learn more about Rick Over. And I'm looking forward to reading the book uh, and just unpacking those unusual things you're going to find in the middle of, you know, 500 pages. You're going to find something that's going to make you laugh, smile, or go, holy cow, I had no idea uh, that he he did this. So uh, I appreciate the work that you're doing. How can our listeners find out more about uh, about you, this particular book, or all your books that you've written? A full list of my books is located at the Authors Guild on my biography page. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or what used to be called Twitter at at CG Barabi, uh, or uh, just go look at Amazon or Barnes and Noble, and you'll see uh, the eight books that I've written, both fiction and nonfiction. Fantastic. We're going to put links in the show notes for Claude's resources. And again, I highly encourage, especially I know we've got a lot of veterans listening in and we've got a lot of veteran submariners listening in. So uh, get this book, Rick Over Uncensored. You're going to learn a lot about this admiral, this this cherished admiral, this person that had such an impact on our, our world. You're going to get to know a lot more about him in this book. Claude, I really appreciate you taking time out and, and, and sharing what you learned uh, through doing the research on Admiral Rick Over. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying take care and lead well. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all you do. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information and updates, please visit our website at www.deepleadershippodcast.com or johnsrenny.com. Until next time, take care. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your hosts for The, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour.
Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. 